Hey everyone, D3 here. Normally I don't do announcements like this at the start of a show, but today I thought I'd make an exception. Yesterday, April 26th, 2021, the great Al Schmidt was called up to the session in the sky. If you don't know Al's name, you know his work. Al has well over a thousand credits to his name, 23 Grammys, over 160 platinum and gold albums, and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Frankly, listing off who he hasn't worked with takes less time than telling you who he has worked with. A short list of who he's worked with, though, would be Frank Sinatra, Miles Davis, Ray Charles, Paul McCartney, Natalie Cole, Hot Tuna, Jefferson Airplane, Earth, Wind & Fire, Boz Gags, Diana Krall, Bill Evans, Sam Cooke, Dwayne Eddy, Glenn Yarbrough, Jackson Brown, and so many more whose music you've all most likely listened to. Al, I didn't get to know you too terribly well, and for that I am truly sorry. The few times I did get to meet you were just recently over Zoom at Pete Dell's Audio Lunch Bunch, where you were ex exuberant as ever. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for the stories, and thank you for reminding me why we do what we do, no matter how young or old. From all of us here at Ready to Record, and the recording industry as a whole, we love you, Al. Rest easy. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing friend and jazz mafia creator and... Don, Mr. Adam Thies. That was a whole lot of fun, and I highly recommend you check that one out, as well as a lot of other great music podcasts over at our network site, pantheonpodcast.com. You can also find other episodes of Ready to Record at our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today is a lot of fun. I have the extreme pleasure of talking to Mr. Dusty Wakeman. In a hot dog stand, I'm making them hot dogs as fast as you can. Up steps, the cat yells, Don't be slow, and get me two hot dogs ready to go. Hot dog! She's my baby. Hot dog! Drives me crazy. Hot dog! I don't mean maybe what Dusty Wakeman is really quite an interesting cat. Growing up, being a bass player, and eventually finding his way to L.A., Dusty soon found himself running what is now a legendary studio, Mad Dog, which was located in Venice for its first 15 years before moving to Burbank. At Mad Dog, Dusty worked with some of the top country names out there, from Lucinda Williams to Dwight Yoakam to Jim Lauderdale to Buck Owens and so many more. Today we got to talking about a little bit of everything, from his career at Mad Dog all the way to what he's doing now for the last 15 years as the president of Mojave Audio, a company started by none other than David Royer. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dusty Wakeman. Mr. Dusty Wakeman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Daniel. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Um, I, like I said before I hit record, uh, I kind of want to talk about everything. You have an interesting career. You're now the president of Mojave Audio, but you started out as a producer and engineer like like most of us. How how did you get into it, and where was the, where was the jumping off point from I'm a producer and an engineer with a studio to I'm in the gear-making business? Well, going even further back, I actually started as, as a musician. I'm a bass player. 
I'm still a bass player. And that's kind of what got me into recording from Houston, Texas. And I had the good fortune of being in a really talented band in high school. Uh, I mean, I was the bass player with a bunch of really talented guys. And the two other guitar players took lessons from a guy. uh, And I started taking lessons and we would actually do group lessons together, which was really cool. But he had a, at the time, a pro recording studio in his house. It was four channel, but it was pro. It was Studer and, you know, real real stuff. Mm -hmm. And I probably spent more time learning that than I did doing my bass lessons. And actually helped him, you know, I was an idiot. So I get to crawl around up in the attic in the insulation and install, you know, uh, bass traps and stuff like that. But they really gave me the bug. And well, But that's the best part. Yeah. And then I was always the guy in the band that wanted to record our rehearsals and would, you know, well, if mm. we would have a sleepover somewhere, we'd be doing stuff like making backwards tape loops and recording somebody s- snoring and stuff like that. We were big Zappa kids. So uh, that's what got me into it. And then I went off to college, played in bands, went off to college at UT, University of Texas, and wanted to study recording engineering, but it didn't exist back then. That wasn't a Mm -hmm. thing. And I was a radio TV film major for a while, but there was, you know, what I wanted to do was make records. So I was in and out of school playing in bands. Then I got a gig with a band called the Barons and I was like 20, they were mid thirties and they came from the South Texas dance hall scene, which is a whole, that's a whole nother two hour conversation, but they had a recording studio in a little town outside of Houston and a record label. And, you know, we would, we would play these big dance halls on weekends, but during the week it was all, you know, you just lived in the studio, either cutting our stuff or cutting other people. So my first session was a mariachi trio that our lead singer drug over from the beer joint next door. And they didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Spanish, but we were able to like get them around a U87 and uh, hit record. And that was my very first recording. And then, you know, I was in that band for about two years and just lived in the studio. And uh, it was great experience. So did that, got in a, a band in Houston that was popular, uh, a moving kind of a ZZ Top related spinoff, some of those guys in Houston. And that got me to mm-hmm. LA. And once I got to LA, it was like, okay, this is where I need to be. So we came out and recorded here at a famous studio called Indigo Ranch in 1976. And it was up in Malibu, at the back of a canyon. And it was just spectacular, beautiful weather and had a great time. And that really made me fall in love with Southern California and LA. And I went back to Houston. I was working at a music store called Brook Mays. Uh, I went back to Brook Mays music where I was working and sent out a bunch of resumes to all these companies that were in Southern California. And one of them was West LA music. So he called me back and I, I was already selling guitars. So I came out here and interviewed and got a job at West LA music and worked there from 77 to 80. And that was kind of cool because that was the very beginning of home, really home recording. The uh, Tascam 40-4 and 80-8 and the Model 5A mixers all came out during that time period. And I was the only guy in the store that had recording experience that actually knew how to hook them up and use them. So I had a great run there at West LA Music. One of my clients, that I sold a bunch of stuff to had some dough and just, I was kind of getting burned out on retail. It was either like go to work as a rep for Yamaha or get back to doing music full time, which is what I wanted mm-hmm. to do. A client of mine had some dough and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to start a recording studio. You, do you want to help me do it? And I just kind of cavalierly said, sure. And that was the beginning of Mad Dog Studio in 1980 which ran until 2008, so 28 years. And I'd already had my engineering experience. And then from engineering into producing is just, you know, there's a lot of bass player, a lot of producers that are bass players. Uh, I have theories on that. Myself included. uh, See, there you go. See, there you go. Proven once again. Uh, From 
engineered a producer for me because I was also a musician. It was just kind of a natural progression. It's like, you know, you get on sessions and, and get frustrated and think, you know, I could, I could solve this in a second if I was in charge or, you know, that kind of thing. So it was just, it was just a natural progression. I worked as a engineer for a producer named Pete Anderson for about 15 years. The Pete is Dwight Yoakam's guitar player and producer. And we did, uh, you know, Roy Orbison and we did a lot of stuff together. And a lot of people that I ended up working with later as a producer, Lucinda Williams and Jim Lauderdale, Rosie Flores, I actually met through Pete when he worked with them and I was the engineer. So there was just kind of an organic growth there gotcha. into, into production. And then when Pro Tools hit, I I didn't know how to work it for a long time because I had I'd always have some young assistant that was a Pro Tools whiz working with me. So I got even more strictly into producing at that point because I wasn't allowed to touch the Pro Tools. Finally, I got frustrated and, and learned how to work it. And I'm I'm not a whiz on it, but I can hunt and peck and, you know, I can get around on it. I can mix a record or do a recording. I'm just not a fast editor. So all those things were just, you know, a long, slow growth. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's everybody in this business, right? You know, we we all got to find our way as as engineers or producers and and get ourselves into the right headspace. I mean, that's that's why the old studios started all of us off uh, cleaning toilets and getting coffee in the morning, right? Yeah, well, I came up a little bit differently because, you know, I I didn't never get a and I, and I kind of missed out that I never worked it started at Record Plant or Capital as a as a runner and worked my way up because that's really where you get the high end education. Once you know what recording is, that's when you right. get to work with the the masters and you know work with Al Schmidt or somebody like that and learn from them. We built our own studio, so we just kind of made shit up and figured out ways to make it work. And then over time, we started getting good enough clientele that, uh, okay, now we've got some guys that we can learn some stuff from. And then when I when we started doing the Dwight Yoakam mm. records, that was the first time I worked at Capitol. And all the assistants there were amazing engineers, much better engineers than I was in terms of experience. And two of those, there, there was... They were all great, but two of those guys, Charlie Picari and Peter Dell, um, were guys that I made a lot of records with at Capitol. And I learned so much from those two guys. You know, I was the one thing I give myself credit for is when they would say, Okay, where do you want to put the drum kit? I would say, Well, where do you like it? And, you know, that they would light up and go, Oh, well, I I like it over here. It's like, well, let's do that. You know, what mics do you want on the overheads? I don't know. What do you got? What do you like? Because I knew 414s and U87s, but I didn't know about 251s and 67s and C24s and all these mics. You know, I'd never had access to them. So they'd break out the good stuff when, you know, all of a sudden I'm, you know, using these mics that I'd never used before, but were just amazing. So I learned a lot from those guys. I give them a lot of credit for my engineering education no you know i'm glad you brought up charlie now christina picari christina uh, yes who dear I actually, friend i actually spoke to her a few episodes back it was it was a lot of fun she's she she is an interesting human being with a, absolutely with a lot of different experience yep and a great and, human being and a killer engineer oh yeah there are a lot of people that i've spoken to who have experience like that but she is one of those people that you can really learn something from very quickly. Yeah. Like she, she will explain something. And I think I can, I can say this of several people, but of her, I can very safely say that I probably learned more speaking to her for a couple of hours than I have in some, uh, you know, courses that you, that you pay money for. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I saw that she was on your on your list of people and plan on listening to that that episode. I'm just I'm drowning in podcasts that I want to listen to, but I definitely want to listen to that one. 
Aren't we all? Yeah, that I was know. a fun one. As 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 was uh I spoke to Lenise Bent and another uh, dear friend and Shelly and Shelly Yakis and uh Toby Scott. They're they're all um See, I want to listen to all of those. I edited all of them and I I want to go back and listen to them. All. Right. Right. Yeah, I I've met Shelly. Uh I don't I've never worked with him. I don't really know him. There before uh, COVID hit, there's this Wednesday lunch here in Burbank. It's the Pro Audio Lunch Bunch that Pete Dell started. And mm-hmm. so I've met people like Shelly at, at, at that function. That's something I can't wait for it to start up again, probably in the fall. But it was a blast. But, you know, Al Schmidt would show up and people like that. You never know who you're going to run into. Robert Margoloff and... Lots of veteran guys. Jack and Douglas. those guys are gods. Absolutely. All my heroes. Jack Douglas. And then Toby used to live in L.A., Toby Scott, and engineered my band right. in the late 70s at, I think it was Clover Studios. Really? Yeah. So I've watched his that's, career with Bruce really Springsteen fun. over the years and said, yeah, I know that guy. Speaking of studios, I, I'm... I want to jump into Mad Dog a bit um, because I, I've I've tried to look up some of the stuff from from Mad Dog and I saw that you guys started, you know, small uh, Amec console, Atari uh, machines, um, and then kind of grew to Neve desks and higher end gear. What? How? How was the progression of uh, Mad Dog over the years? What What was that like? I, I know you initially were in Venice for 15 years and then moved. Yeah. To and I don't know if you've been on our, we have a Facebook page. It's, I think it's the real mad dog studio or something like that to look it up. But if you type in mad dog studios, it'll pop up. I just posted some pictures cause I hadn't been, I'm in Burbank and Venice is, you know, 45 minutes away. I don't get over there much. And right. I was down there recently and we drove by where the original Mad Dog was, and I posted some pictures. It's all boarded up, has graffiti all over it, but there's actually some pictures on my on that Facebook page you can you can check out. But I was telling you about how I got into into Mad Dog. It was my original partner was a guy named Mark Avnet, who I'm still really close with, really great guy, and he bought from a guy here in L.A. named Van Webster. Uh, a Tascam Model 10 board and a Scully 16 track two inch machine that was as big as a refrigerator. It was huge. And that was our, (laughs) that was our very first rig. We started, started there about six. Fortunately, Mark had some money to make all this happen. So we, we quickly outgrew the Scully. The Scully used to eat tape and we had a, a, a tech friend, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. We had a tech friend who said, oh, I can make that go 30 ips for you. Well, he did. And it would go 30 ips because it was seven and a half and 15 stock. But the problem is the right. transport, the, the transport was not designed to handle 30 ips. So it would eat tape all the time. So you'd be there working. All of a sudden you started hearing this kind of sickening, crunching sound and look over and the studers, you know, it's riding up the capstan and, and it's starting to eat it. You dive for the re- the remote to stop it, so that lasted about six months, mm-hmm. and then we bought an Atari MTR ninety sixteen track, and I love those machines. MTR ninety was a great machine, um, and then we bought a set of twenty four track heads for it, and that carried us for until we got to the next generation of Mad Dog console. Console-wise, we had that Tascam Model 10, and that was really a piece of crap. It it was a minus 10 level console, so it had to have plug-in transformers on every input. Cheap, like you'd buy in a music store, Oof. transformers, so that you could plug in a plus four machine. Right. And the patch bay was RCA, and it was just, you know, not very good. And we we bought a Autotronics... I think it was a 501. It's a famous American console. I think it had something to do with the MCI people built in the, in the South somewhere. 
Yes. But it's the same console that they used at Stacks. They have one at the Stacks Museum that's exactly like what we had. We bought that. It was an 18 by 16 console. We bought that from the guitar player for Three Dog Night, who had a really nice studio in his house over in Santa Monica. And I don't know if uh, he got out of the studio thing after that. I'm not sure what happened. You know, having a home studio is something I always said I would never do because I saw it ruin too many people's lives, you know, or too many marriages. But that was a cool <laughs> console, but we outgrew that. And then that's what we got the Amec Angela. So that kept gotcha. us going until 2000. I think it was 2005. Mark decided he'd had enough of the music business. He was smart and had many interests. And he moved back east where he was from. And I picked up a new partner, Michael Dumas, who is a fellow Texan. And he was Dwight Yoakam's live sound mixer. And he'd been re to recording school here in L.A. and was ready to get into the studio. So we each, each were able to borrow some money from our dads and remodeled the studio. And we bought our Neve 8108 console and our Studer uh, A800 from a legendary producer named Keith Olson, who had a room called Goodnight L.A. It was right next to Sound City over in Van Nuys. And he worked a lot with um, Fleetwood Mac and Boston. And he's a legendary superstar. He passed away a few years ago, but great guy. He was like Uncle Keith. We'd come over, you know, when we met him and he would tell us stories. And, you know, he had to co-sign. We had to get everybody we knew to co-sign on the equipment lease in order to get that stuff. So my both families signed on and Keith actually had to guarantee it for two years, which he did, which is that's a real mensch thing to do, you know, but he was, he was uncle really? Keith. And that's, that's when I got into the Neve and Studer business a around that time, we started doing Dwight's first record and I got to work at Capitol and in studio B, which is still my favorite studio in the world, studio B at Capitol. And that's an 8068. Now it's a couple of 8068s put together, but they had one 8068 there. And then we mixed the stuff across the hall in Studio C, which was a mix room. And that was an 8108. So my logic at the time was an 80, 8108 would be more versatile than the 80 series. Looking back, I wish I would have bought an 80 series at the time because they're much better than the 81 series sounding and resale value and all that stuff. But that's what got us into the Neve and Studer business. So we worked there until let's see that was mid 80s until mid 90s and by then Ven crack cocaine had been invented and venice was really going down the tubes though venice had been really kind of a cool hippie bohemian community and now i'd gotten like gangs and crack dens and cops and sirens and helicopters and all that crap so we really wanted to get out of there plus we'd outgrown the space. It was, it was tiny. We didn't have any parking. So like the big budget records that I did with Pete, we would do all of those at Capitol because we just couldn't handle it at Mad Dog. We do the lower budget stuff at Mad Dog and all the indie stuff. And, but the big budget mm -hmm. stuff we, we did mainly at Capitol. Uh, we wanted to move out of there. We wanted a bigger room. My partner had moved to Burbank and I, I was moving to Glendale, which is across town, which in LA, that's a big consideration. We right. found this space in Burbank and moved there in 2000, no, 1995. And it was there. That was a three room complex, 6,000 square foot, uh, a couple of big rooms and a smaller room. And we were there, kept it going until 2008. And that's where we had the Neve gotcha. 8088, which was my dream console. That console I got from Sylvia Massey. She had a room at Sound City really? and had her, yeah, she had her, I believe it's an 8068 that she had. She just recently sold it. I'm pretty sure it was an 8068, but it was a vintage Neve, a really sweet one. And she bought this one as an investment and had rented it for out for a pop-up studio for an REM album for a year. But then she called me, she had told me about it, but I wasn't interested at the time. So she leased it out for a year. And then I was like, I got to, I got to move up. I can't, we're not getting the business we want with this 81 series console. 
because they just weren't the same status as an 80 series. So I called her up and said, Sylvia, what's up with that console? She said, well, they're just go look at it. Go look at it today because they're boxing it up. It's going into storage. So I went and hopped in my car, drove over to Koreatown and checked it out. And the engineer that had been using it said, this is the nicest vintage Neve I've ever worked on. It's just clean and not a lot of problems and sounds great. So we made a deal, like a profit sharing deal on my Studio A. Sylvia moved it in. Uh, Pat Schneider did a bunch of mods on it. He put in a center section and flying faders and turned it into a 24 bus instead of a 16 bus. It had come from a TV studio in Tokyo. Uh, so 16 bus was fine hmm. for them. Or it might have been eight bus. I can't even remember now. It might have been right. an eight bus broadcast console. But with this amazing front end, 40 channels or 31 102 modules. Uh, and so he put flying faders on it and Ooh, put in the center good. section. Oh, yeah. Sweet. An 8088 is basically an 8068, but built with eight more channels. And very few of them were made. Right. It's the 58 is the 24, the 68 is the 32, and then the right. 88 is the 40. Right. And there were so many variations on those themes, too. But that's a that was the starting point. Right. But yeah, just a, a dream console. And, uh, you know, I loved my 800 and I had an ATR 102 uh, for mixing down and, you know, a beautiful plate. When when I sold the place, you know, the rest of it, because I had so much gear, three rooms, you can imagine, 25 years worth, 28 years worth. Uh, of course. But the things that really hurt to sell were the console, the EMT plate, my U47 and the piano. I had a Yamaha C7. It was just like the greatest. Put any pair of mics on it and it sounded great. Just a great rock and roll country pop sounding piano. Everything else was just stuff. I was okay with selling it. You know, it's funny. I, I have a buddy. He uh, He's actually another person who's been a guest on the show, a guy named Craig Dreyer. He has a Yamaha Grand in his studio in Brooklyn. And it's, it's funny. It's, it's one room, two room studio. He's got a live room and then a smaller, uh, smaller ISO booth. But even the ISO booth is 10 by 10. It's, it's not a bad space. Um, but in his 25 by 20 live room, he's got this great big Yamaha uh, acoustic piano and he does uh, jazz and funk albums on it. It's a, it's a great all rounder. can really do anything with it. Um, and speaking of mics, I think that's actually a perfect segue into Mojave. So you were at Mad Dog for 28 years. How did you transition into uh, being at Mojave Audio and eventually being president of Mojave Audio? Well, several things happen. A lot of it, like everything else, is right place at the right time. But around, my son is 21 years old now. When Around the time he was born, I woke up one day and realized I was a small business owner. And I was always at the mercy of my studio managers before that to do the books. I did, it was kind of like I was with Pro Tools. I didn't know how to work QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. And finally, one of my employees said, you know, you give me half an hour. I'll show you how to work it. You should be doing this yourself so that you know what's going on with your business. And being an engineer and, you know, I always preferred to be in the control room than the office, but you know, I was studio owner. I had a certain amount of office work that had to be done. So I actually went to Glendale Community College and took two semesters of accounting, a business law class, and a computer science 101, which was basically a Windows, intro to Windows class. And especially the accounting, that really changed my life because I could apply it. I had a business I could apply it to. You learn that stuff and then it's like, wow, how does anybody function without knowing this stuff in the music business? You, you got to understand this stuff. So I took accounting and got a lot, a lot more hands on it running my business. Around that time, 2000, you know, September 11th happened and the economy slid off the cliff and the record industry especially kind of slid off a cliff around that time. And our our studio was in the top tier of studios in LA, but it wasn't 
it, it was kind of at the bottom of the top tier. I mean, it was very comfortable, attractive place, but it wasn't fancy and it wasn't in Hollywood. It wasn't like a luxury studio. It was a working class mm. studio. And I used to always call it, you know, world-class recording at working class rates. And we had a great clientele, a lot of great producers, Sylvia Massey and David Bianco and Joe Barisi and Ryan Hewitt and all these people that are, have gone on to have great careers and are having great careers as producers. A lot of them would work there and, and mostly they would come there with bands that were on their first record, major label deal. So they would have like a hundred and fifty to $250,000 budget. And they would come in there for a month and track. And then a lot of times they'd go mix on a SSL someplace. That was kind of the thing. Track on an Eve, mix on an SSL. And that that's what wow. kept my A room afloat. And then a lot of times I would be busy in the B room, the smaller room, doing my indie stuff and working with my clients. And then we had this other big room, a 3,000 square foot soundstage that we did a lot of Originally, it was more of a rehearsal space and a production space, but then it, it morphed into being another recording room over time. So a lot of times we'd have three rooms rocking. But after September 11th, early 2000s, they really stopped signing new bands. There was no more artist development going on. So that dried up a lot of that business for us. And all those great clients that we had, they were forced to get their own rooms in order to survive. Budgets got a lot smaller and it would be an all in thing instead of them having a separate producer advance uh, and producer advances were big back then. They'd be 20, you know, 30 to $50,000 in points. You know, it went from that to like 50 grand being the budget for the entire record, including your fee and recording costs. So here's the money you make a record and you get to keep what's whatever's left. And that's kind of the way things are now, except for at the very highest tiers, hit artists. But they're all going to, you right. know, Capitol and, and Henson and Record Plant and The Village and those studios. So, and, and I'd been working nonstop since 1980, making records and loving every minute of it. But, you know, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week. And, one, and my wife worked in the movie business and her hours were just as crazy because she'd be on set a lot. She was a decorator. So that's one reason we just never started a family. You know, we were just too busy having fun and pursuing our careers. But when we got in the kid business, I didn't want to be an absentee father and be just gone in the studio all the time. And the industry was changing. And I was just kind of, that period from 2001 to 2005, kind of just looking around, like, what else could I do? I had a background in pro audio from my days at West LA music. Well, along that time, I kind of rediscovered ribbon mics and saw the ad, the first Royer ad, it was in probably mix magazine or something and saw that they were in Burbank and I was in Burbank. Sure. So called them up, met John Jennings, who was the VP of sales and one of the owners of Royer. And we got to be friends and I was a Royer endorser and would do crazy things like, Hey John, I'm doing a big band record this weekend. Can I borrow like 20 microphones? <laughs> you know? And, and he would hook <laughs> me up. We got to be buddies and he would bring prototypes over and do R and D at mad dog. We're on there for first demo CD. And just as a small world thing, I'm, I'm a desert rat. I used to have a guest ranch out in the Joshua tree area. I don't currently, but I still love, I'm hmm. going out there this weekend to play music. But David Royer is a desert rat and has a cabin out in Joshua Tree where he spends a lot of time. And I knew of David. He was this kind of mysterious guy that I had mutual friends with who would show up on a on a motorcycle with a sock and a sack and, and say, here, here's something I made. I want you to have it. So that he was, there was this mystique about David. So finally, I met him, put two and two together. It's like, oh, you're that guy. You're the desert Mike guy through John Jennings. And we all got to be friends. So fast forward a few years, Eddie Kramer, the legendary producer, engineer, Hendrix, Zeppelin guy, he would come work at Mad Dog right. a lot. I, was all, I would always kid him and say he was slumming when he came there, but he liked the room and did some amazing recordings there. 
And John came over. He had a, my my prized pair of U67s out in the room as drum as a room mics. And John Jennings brought over this prototype MA200. And Eddie said, well, go put it up, you know, go put it out there with the 67s. And we tried it out and you would be hard pressed to guess which one of those three wasn't a U67. And I love U67s, one of my favorite mics. Uh, I always used them on overheads and I used them on piano and acoustic guitar and used them on a lot of vocals. And I got, I was interested and said, hey man, what are you going to sell this thing for? And he goes, it's going to be about a grand. And so a light bulb went off and I said, well, you know, if you guys need any help launching this, let me know. Cause I'm kind of looking around for something else to do. And he goes, well, we're, we're starting a new company and we're looking mm-hmm. for somebody to run it. So that was like in, in January and we talked through the year and that September I, I went to Burning Man for a week and came back and started my new career at Mojave Audio. And that was September, 2005. I kept Mad Dog going. Mad Dog was really in a golden age at that point. It was doing really well and everything was paid off. So I kept it going for another three years and I would go straight from straight to there from here. We're about three miles away and go over there and do my studio owner stuff and do the books and all that kind of stuff. And kept that going for a while. But then the universe provided me with the perfect buyer for that console for the 8088. A guy named Tony Ranchick owns a studio called Sonic Ranch that's in West Texas outside of El Paso. And when you have time, go to the Sonic Ranch website and poke around because it's an amazing place. He's got four studios and maybe a mastering room. I can't remember, but four studios spread out on a 2000 acre pecan farm that's on the Rio Grande. It's on the Mexican border. And He's got quite mm. a complex there. I think he's got two Neve rooms and two SSL rooms and an amazing collection of guitars and mics and drums and everything you need. And it's a residential studio. I've got a lot of friends that have been there and just love it. It's a pretty amazing place. But he was in town. Friend of a friend introduced me and he just made like a cash offer on the, the console the second he saw it that I just... You know, there was a voice in my head that said, it'll never be this easy or this perfect again. There's no brokers involved. You know, I'm, it's not even on the market, but this is this is the universe telling me it's time to dismantle this and, and move on. So that was kind of the beginning of dismantling Mad Dog. Broke a lot of hearts. I miss it. I don't miss the business, but I miss the studio. Um What's left of Mad Dog is in my living room now. It's a it's a workstation, so that's kind of the Mad Dog well, that's story. A, that's a crazy story. Yeah, it is a blast, man. I, you know, I got to live my dream, and I is I miss recording, but at, you know, I'm at sixty seven years old. I don't miss the lifestyle. I'm not really interested in sitting in a chair for ten or twelve hours a day. I like mixing stuff, you know, on my own on my own hours. And what I really like is playing bass on people's stuff. And I still do a fair bit of that, either remotely or, you know, once in a while. Last summer, I got to go to Jim Scott's studio and sit in the bass chair for a couple of days and play bass on an album. And that's that's just a blast. But I've got so many of my guys, my Mad Dog guys are scattered around L.A. and they're all are having great careers. I'm, you know, proud of all of them. So I've kind of got carte blanche at a lot of studios around town if I need access to one. Mm-hmm. And then my partner, Colin, who's a, a partner in Mojave, has a bitchin' studio called Plastic Dog that's over in Venice that's just a wonderful place. And we shoot a lot of video there and do a lot of R&D there. And so I can get into studios whenever I need to get into studios and s- satisfy my Jones. Is Is there ever a time where you think about man i should just go into a little room and and you know have a have a small studio to myself again or you or, or is it you know is the urge satiated by the the carte blanche and the and the workstation in the living room yeah i'm pretty good when i moved out of mad dog in 2008 my wife was so happy that 
uh, was out of Mad Dog that she gave me the whole <laughs> living room. And it's a pretty good size room. And I had a bunch of gobos that were four by eight, really nice, expensive gobos that we'd built for Mad Dog. They were like a finished plywood on one side and 705 with Guilford of Maine fabric on them on the other side. Uh, some had windows, some didn't. I had a bunch of those. And then I had these traps made by Chris Polonis. They were his first product. They were called the Edge. And they were these corner base traps that are like eight feet tall. They're they're a triangle. And they're like eight, eight feet tall, four feet wide on one side and two feet wide on the other. So it, it makes a triangle that you can put in corners and line like the back wall. So I had four of those. Those were massive. So I was able to line my living room. I had those in all four corners and then line the walls with these gobos. So it was really dialed in. And I still had a baby grand piano at that time and a ton of gear. And it's like, okay, I'm set. I had a snake and it was all dialed in. It's like, I could actually track something here, but I did it like two times and, you know, I have a family and it's like, okay, everybody be quiet. We're tracking now. You know, it just, it was more hassle than it was worth. So finally I hauled and my wife was just like, look, I want my, you're not even using this. It's just a dead space. You, you know, you use the workstation, but you don't use the rest of this. So can we like reclaim the living room? And I said, okay. So one of my main Mad Dog guys is Sam Rakuja, and he has a bitchin' studio in LA, downtown LA called Seahorse Sound. And it's a big space. So I just rented a truck and we loaded everything out and I took it all down there. It's all down there. And it, it fits much nicer in his, his big studio than it did in my living room. And, you know, it's there if I ever need it. But <laughs> I'm just really not recording that much, uh, like I say. So right now I've just got one end of the room. And we're in constant negotiation about that chunk of real estate too. And then I've got an, an Apollo rig <laughs> here at the office. I've got my MacBook and a couple of Apollo 8Ps. So I've actually got two rigs, one big Pro Tools rig at home and then my Apollo portable rig. So I'm pretty set. But yeah, I mean, if I, you know, had time and money, I would maybe convert the garage and do that. But, you know, I'm really between Mojave Audio and all the other stuff I'm involved in, I really don't have a lot of time to record projects. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Right. I'm not sure I really would, would do a, another room. And I'm not sure I would want it at my house. It, it might be like subletting a room someplace else in somebody else's facility. It would probably look more like that. But like right. I said, I don't really have the need right now. Well, if you do opt for a garage, I'm sitting. I'm sitting in mine. <laughs> I can I can vouch for the uh, for the usefulness of garages. Man, my garage is so full of stuff that I can't even sit in my garage. It's Ooh. where all the mic stands <laughs> are, and I had this huge grip case that's full of cables. It's like a roll around grip case. It's huge, and it's completely full of leftover cables from Mad. I've gotten rid of most stuff, but I kind of kept enough little stuff. My wife does some voiceover work. So I keep enough for that. And she wants to start a podcast. So, you know, keep enough stuff to be able to pull some little things off and be able to, I was, I had a, a rack of, uh, uh, 1272s. I had eight 1272s, which are Neve, you know, converted line amps that are turned into Mike Priest, right. Brent, Brent Averill. And I had four channels of John Hardy M1 preamps and two distressors and two 11. You know, I had a, a nice rack of stuff. And over the years, I just sold it all off. I'm down to two John Hardy M1s now and one distressor. And I have a wonderful direct box that A Designs makes called a Ready Box. That's basically the front end of a B15 uh, preamp. And it's a tube, tube DI. And I cut all my bass through that. And that's pretty much it. You know, mics are not a problem. I have access to mics. 
Well, of course, you're the president of a microphone company, right? After which, all. which, when I was selling my U47 one year because I needed to pay property taxes, and the U47 was enough to cover it, she reminded me. It's like you know, when was the last time you used that mic? It was in my closet, and um, oh, about five years ago. And it's like, well, do you have any plans to use it? Well, not really. And what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm the president of a microphone company. It's like, okay, okay, I'll sell it. So sold it and paid the property taxes. It was painful. I hated to let that one go. That was a sweet mic. And I'd bought it at Mad Dog for 1300 bucks you know, back in, in 85. So it was hard to let that go. But, you know. When you could actually, when you could buy a 47 for 1300 bucks. Right. Yeah, it was a sweet one too. But I'm surrounded by mics. I still have a pair of 122s, uh, Royer 122s, and a 121. And then I've got, you know, two of everything we make. And I've got an SM7 and some 57s. And I think I've got a box of 321, uh, 421 somewhere that I should probably sell those to somebody who will use them. But that's pretty much it for the mic, mic scene. And that's enough. Right. In the end, it's all just stuff. Can't take it with you. I've had a lot of fun talking to Dusty, but the fun isn't over yet. Tune in next week, May 4th, for part two with Dusty Wakeman. We're going to be talking about a lot of cool stuff, including some new things in works from Mojave Audio. Welcome to Gear Talk. Now, since Dusty's on the show, I would make a point to talk about mics on today's gear segment, but given that next week is going to be pretty jam-packed with microphone content, I thought I would do something that's just as important when it comes to Dusty's career, and that is bass. Today, though, I want to focus in on one specific part of the instrument, and that is pickups. Now, pickups on any electric instrument are incredibly important. What pickup you choose will drastically change the sound of your instrument. For me, choosing pickups is a bit more of an art than a science, though if you so choose, you can get incredibly technical with the process. For me personally, in the bass department, I'm a pretty big fan of early 50 slab body precision bass style instruments. Matter of fact, my 51 reissue P bass could be considered my number one. The pickups in that instrument, though, can be a bit of a weak spot for me. I dig in pretty hard with my playing, and I end up damaging the fragile piece of electronics. Now, some of you may be screaming to me, D3, that's a terrible thing. You break pickups in your bass all the time. But you know what? I'm actually kind of okay with it. Having to replace the pickup in the instrument so often means I'm allowed to try new pickups without feeling so bad about changing out a working one. Now, currently, I have installed in the base a Nordstrand Audio Hum Cancelling 51P pickup, which is really cool. It's a split coil that mimics the tone of original 51 single coil by pressing the two coils together on a single bobbin. The result is quite thick and, of course, noiseless because of the split coil design by comparison to an original single coil, but it still retains the punch and feel of the old school single coil pickups. Now, prior to this one, I had a really cool pickup from Seymour Duncan, which was a custom shop stacked 51P pickup. It's a four conductor design, meaning that you can split the pickup down into a single coil for some extra punch or a more vintage accurate style. I found this incredibly handy in a three or four piece Americana setup where I may have to turn off the bottom coil to get some punch into my sound to sit above the drummer if I have to, or get above the band when called on for a solo. Having the hum cancelling was also nice, and being able to thicken up in the flip of a switch was great. 
because I was able to go from sitting above the drummer to sitting below the drummer in no time flat. In my jazz fusion band, this allowed me various tonal options with my very heavy use of the tone control, which was paramount in getting the best possible tones for the varying material we play. In the studio, it was a real treat. I could have anything from a telly bass sound to a P bass sound, modern split coil kind of P bass, to a bit of a jazz bass sound, all with my tone control and a push-pull pod. Needless to say, I'm still quite enamored with that Seymour Duncan pickup, but in spite of how much I'm gushing about it right now, in my day-to-day, I haven't actually really missed it that much. This is because of Kerry Nordstrand's ingenious idea to make two tone pots in one by putting two capacitors on a push-pull and making them switchable. Well, on paper, this may not be as versatile as a four-conductor pickup, I've been incredibly pleased playing my 51P bass and being able to have the switchable tone pot on the fly. It's honestly more than made up for the coil-splitting capability of the Duncan. In the future, I may actually have to load up a bass with that Duncan pickup and shoot out the two to show off what they each can do. I love both of them and have enjoyed my time with both of them, so I would be interested to see how they square up to each other side by side. That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Dusty Wakeman, man. It was so great having you on, and I can't wait for everybody to hear our conversation more next week. For all of you listening, tune in next week for part two with Dusty Wakeman, as well as a Music from Blue Girl segment. I was planning on doing it this week, but frankly, I really wanted to show off a track that is featuring the bass guitar that I just shared in Music from Blue Girl with the Nordstrand pickup, and I really wanted to make sure that it was polished enough to share with all of you, and when you hear it, I really think you're going to like it. For now, though, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>